Good morning to all of you and greetings in Jesus' name, the one that we have been talking about already. The prophet Isaiah said that the people that sat in darkness saw a great light, and I usually think about that verse, especially this time of the year, Jesus being the light of the world, the light that came into the world brought life and brought hope, so I'm glad that we are here to honor him this morning and want to continue to do that. The sermon this morning is taken from Colossians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I'm not preaching a Christmas message. Um, I'm also, if you're kind of paying attention, I'm <laughs> skipping a section of verses in the book of Colossians. I don't know if that's good or not. But um, there's a section of verses in chapter 3 that speak about wives submitting to your husbands and husbands loving your wives and fathers and servants and masters and those relationships. And I'm not skipping those because it's not important. Um, there's certainly message to, messages to be preached from that. And I might come back and preach from there yet. I don't know, but I do feel like uh, I, I just... Kinley is preaching through some of those things in the book of First Peter right now, and um, I felt like there would be some overlap there. So I'm moving into Colossians chapter 4, and hopefully um, I'd like to wrap up this study in Colossians in another sermon or two. Um, so... I don't know if that's good or not, but that's that's what I was uh, that's what I'm planning to do. All right, Colossians chapter four, verses one through six. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. And I think the chapter division should be right there. Um, that that verse kind of goes with chapter three, but. Continue in prayer and watching in the same with thanksgiving, with all praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. So this morning I'd like to think about walking in wisdom toward those without. Um, that's kind of the theme of these several verses here in Colossians chapter 4. The Gallup people, uh, they're the people who do polling, they found that in uh, 2021, church membership in America, for the first time ever, well, I shouldn't say for the first time ever, for the first time since they started measuring it, um, I'm sure the Indians didn't uh, go to church. But anyway, they found out that church membership in America uh, fell below 50% for the first time in 2021 since they started doing these polls. In 1937, 73% of Americans were church members. And that number stayed fairly consistent for 60-some years. But it's uh, only been since about the turn of the 
century, the turn of the millennium, since about 2000, that church membership has steadily been declining in America. And again, it, it just recently fell under 50%. And I'm sure a lot of that also had to do with 2020 COVID and people just, that, that, that was kind of a, a breaking point for many people. They quit going to church. Now, this doesn't affect us as much here in Royal Juniata County, maybe. We, we, we kind of live in a conservative, church-going, somewhat part of the, the nation. And yet, we live in a society that is becoming less familiar with the church, and it wears off on people all over. Um, they're becoming more estranged from God, more estranged from religion of any kind. And I should probably clarify that church membership is, is a religion of any kind. That includes Jews, Muslims, uh, anything. But in verse 5, Paul uses this phrase here in our text. He's, he uses the phrase, those, them that are without. He's talking about those who are outside of the church, outside of the kingdom of God. They don't know about Jesus. Um, they have rejected the moral authority of the word of God. They have decided they don't need the church. They can live as they choose, as their own heart directs them. They feel a right to the pleasures of the world. Um, they can cheat and lie in business. It gives them an advantage if they can get away with it. You know, they, they do those things. They have no scruples about using foul language and speaking evil about others. It doesn't bother them to have bitterness and anger unforgiving spirits, those are the kinds of people that uh, I believe Paul is talking about by those who are without. They're estranged from the church. They're estranged from God. And perhaps he's also talking about those, the person who may be living a good moral life, but just doesn't see the need for Jesus Christ and to be saved by his blood. And we know people like this. We've met people like this. We've related to them in one way or another, perhaps in business, perhaps as neighbors. You know, we, they're around. And it does take a lot of wisdom to relate to people. It does take a wisdom to maintain a relationship without being influenced by sin and by wrong. It does take wisdom to know when to be quiet and when to speak for the truth in the face of wrong. Now, just an example of that, just recently I was picking up some lumber at, at Rick and Ball Lumber Supply where we get our lumber, and there was a young man there who was, I was, I, he started talking to me, and he, oh, he was asking me about, he knew where I live, and so he was asking about if we really need to watch for deer driving the 35. So I got to, to asking him if he lives. Uh, anyway, I figured out that he lives in my neighborhood up here by Reed's Gap, and you know, I learned his name. And, and well, I asked him, he told me where he lives there, and I said, are you married? And he said, no. He said, I just live there with my girlfriend. And so, you know, right there, I was kind of confronted with the, uh, a situation, you know, should I, here we were talking, should I act like 
that's just fine and good to live with your girlfriend before you're married? Should I, I, should I tell him you shouldn't be doing that? You know, what, what, what do you do in those situations? Those are real-life situations relating to those who are without. Um, I did not say anything. I was quiet um, about that. So maybe I should have told him that you shouldn't be doing that. But my point is it takes wisdom to relate to the people who are our friends and neighbors and in the community, but they are estranged from the church, estranged from God. They're not living the way that they should be living. The Amplified um, for verse... I didn't even write down which verse this is. Verse 5. Behave yourselves wisely, living prudently and with discretion in your relations with those of the outside world, the non-Christians, making the very most of the time and seizing or buying up the opportunity. That's the amplified version of verse 5. So rightly relating to the world takes wisdom. It takes wisdom beyond ourselves. We need the wisdom of the Spirit of God. We lack the wisdom many times in ourselves. But James tells us that if we ask of God, he will give it to us. He will give it to us without upbraiding. That means he will give it without being critical that we don't have it, without scolding us for, being, for needing wisdom, He's, he's glad when we ask him. He gladly gives it to us. One of the things that the phrases here in these sec- this section of verses that I was that, that kind of jumped out at me and that I was a little bit intrigued with was, was the phrase that Paul uses here in verse 3. He says, With all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance. So I like to think about this door of utterance. I'm, I'm intrigued by Paul's request that the Colossians, the church, would pray for him to open opportunities to speak for Christ. Now we know that while Paul was writing this book, he says here, um, for which also I am in bonds. He was in prison. Paul was in prison for doing exactly what he is asking the Colossian church to give him opportunities to do more of or what he wants them to ask God to give him. Um, And I almost picture him sitting in prison, almost chafing to be able to, you know, not having enough opportunity to speak for Christ and and wanting more. Paul took his call as a steward of the gospel very seriously. He was hungry for opportunities to speak and to preach, and we can see that in the book of Acts. Paul was was just always right there, ready when the time came. He made it his passion and his life. He makes a very uh, similar request in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds, and therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So even though he was stuck in prison, he saw himself 
as an ambassador or a representative of Jesus Christ, and he wanted to be able to speak boldly for him. The message of the gospel had to be shared. That's how he saw it. He saw it as a mystery that needed to be revealed to those who didn't know about it. There's two other verses that I'd like to look at a little bit that show us Paul's desire for the gospel to be spoken. One is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, where he says that in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. So this word enriched means to be made wealthy is what it means. God has made us rich with the resources that we need to speak the gospel message, to speak it into the lives of others. He's given us everything that we need. Paul's saying, you are enriched to give utterance, to declare that message to those who don't know Jesus. And I think Paul saw himself as that way as well. 2 Corinthians 8, 7 is another verse that he wrote. He said, therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. So Paul says in this verse that we are abounding in utterance. Abound means superabundance. It's having enough plus a lot left over. And the picture I get is that the message of Christ and what he has done for us should be bubbling out of our lives. It should be, uh, it's full and running over it. It must come out. It must be expressed. If we are abounding in utterance, there's too much to hold in. It has to come out. Paul's life was an example, again, of always looking for and creating opportunities, looking for that door of utterance to speak to others about the gospel. At Mars Hill, he took advantage of the Athenians and their superstition, and he used the altar that was inscribed to the unknown God. And he said, this unknown God that you are worshiping He's the one I'm going to declare to you today. And he went on to introduce to them the true God and Jesus Christ. That altar, that little inscription was his door of utterance. And at Philippi, Paul and Silas were in prison again. They were um, in chains. They, were, they had been beaten. Certainly not circumstances that most of us would find suitable for singing, but Paul and Silas began to sing. And that opened a door of utterance so that the, the Philippian jailer and his entire household were saved that night. Now, of course, they had some help from God there. God brought an earthquake and he shook that prison and so on. But still, the singing was that opportunity that led to ministering, being a steward of the Word of God. <clears throat> so walking in wisdom toward those without means that we are going to, like Paul, look for opportunities to tell people about Christ and His kingdom. What if we would be as serious as Paul? was as urgent as he was about this message what if we would pray every morning lord please open a door 
a door of opportunity, a door of utterance for me today. Give me an opportunity to speak to somebody. And then we would go through the day anticipating when that moment arrives and waiting to jump on the opportunity. And I'm sure that many of you are living that way. But I, for one, could do so much better. And I'm exhorting myself this morning in these things as much as anybody. In verse 5, Paul says, Walk in wisdom toward them that are without redeeming the time. So I've already talked about looking for opportunities, looking for that door of utterance. Let's think about this concept of redeeming the time. The idea of redeeming something means to buy it, to buy it back or to ransom it. Anybody who's willing to pay a ransom, recognizing that what they are paying for is valuable, it's, it's worth giving money for it's worth buying you wouldn't pay something for something worthless and we re- we realized that time is a valuable commodity all of us get exactly the same amount of time in a day 24 hours for each of us to use we can squander it we can waste it by doing wrong or vain things we can kind of wow it away um doing meaningless things sometimes. Or we can redeem it by recognizing its value and using it with purpose and with intent, especially to build the kingdom of God. I believe that Paul's telling us here that the best possible way to redeem the time is by using it to influence people and to draw them to the gospel of Christ. We know that. We, we, We know that very well. And yet it seems hard to put that knowledge into action so many times. Time just has a way of slipping through our fingers and leaving us with good intentions and uh, missed opportunities so many times. When Jesus was here, he went about his ministry with an awareness that his time was limited. He had a sense of urgency that should be an example to us. He said in John chapter 9, he said, I must work the works of him that sent me. While it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. So Jesus had a good concept of of time and what needed to be accomplished. I ran across a little uh, reading that I thought might be worthwhile reading, thinking about redeeming the time. This This little article comes from a book. Um, I don't remember the title of the book, but it's it's, uh, by a Harvey Mast who is a missionary in Peru. He wrote this book, something about parables of a missionary or something like that, but he wrote this little article on the parable of the wheel. Now, it's not not exactly my style, but um, I think there's a good lesson for us here. Let me read this. There's under our roof a small furry rodent whose name is Chippy Brown, and he belongeth to my daughter. Now Chippy hath great zeal, but he hath not much understanding, and because of his abundant energy and vision, 
Must limitations be imposed upon him so that he follow not his own wisdom and discernment into his big wide world and thus work havoc unawares. And one imposed limitation is a cage. Now the manufacturers of the cage, knowing the nature of hamsters, have placed in the cage a wheel. And for Chippy, this wheel openeth the doors of the cage, as it were, for by it doth he travel far and wide, and by it doth he realize sundry and great accomplishments. For when his aspirations and ambitions rise within him, then doth he mount the wheel and go. Then after a season, having considered himself to have traveled an acceptable distance, he disembarketh and inquireth of his new surroundings, but finding them surprisingly similar to those of his point of departure, he faithfully steppeth back into his wheel, trodden unto his well-trodden path yet again, and raceth on into his future. Thus is Chippy's occupation during most of his waking hours, and it bringeth him great satisfaction and fulfillment in life, for by his frenzied activities doth he acquire a sense of industry, accomplishment, and usefulness. And he putteth forth admirable diligence to run the race that is set before him, knowing not that this race leadeth nowhere. Neither does he experience discouragement, for he hath great zeal. But alas, that zeal is not according to knowledge, for he knoweth not that without me he can go nowhere, nor accomplish anything useful. And so he toileth on, knowing not that it is but an exercise in futility, and he is happy. So the wheel became a parable unto me, and I said to my soul, Behold, now is not thine understanding like unto the understanding of a rodent? Therefore pause to ponder thy path, and perceive now the activity, perceive now that activity doth not equate utility. And when I had paused the treading of my wheel, and when my rodent mind had feebly reflected upon the frenzied activities of missionary life, then did I lift up my voice and squeak unto Brenda, my wife, and I said, My love, consider now our wheels. Behold, what are they? And that is a question we continue to ponder. So the scriptures tell us to ponder the path of our feet. And when we think about this concept of redeeming the time, you know, we do well to do that. Are we like the hamster that is spinning in circles and getting nowhere in life? Are we utilizing what has been given to us and making the most of it? That's something I need to think about. All right, I'm going to move on to verse 6. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. We know that speech is something that the scriptures teach us is very important. The words we say and the way that we say them the tone we use have, has a lot to do with walking in wisdom toward unbelievers. The scriptures teach us, again, that the speech of the Christian is very important. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, the proverb writer tells us. The language and tone of a person tells you a lot about that person. Jesus talks about 
our words. I believe it, I didn't write, I should have wrote it down. I think it's in Matthew chapter 12, maybe. But he, he was talking to the Pharisees and he makes a direct connection between what's in the heart and what is coming out of the mouth. You know, a person's speech is often an accurate window into the heart. Yeah, we can be deceived. People can say the right things. They can, they can act right. They can say the right things. And they can be hypocrites. And one of the other points that Jesus is making to the Pharisees is that if your heart and your actions and your words don't line up, you're going to be judged for that in the day of judgment. So it's important that there's not a discrepancy between speech and character. Now, most people are going to pick that up sooner or later if we're living that way. But our speech is an indication of what is in the heart. It's a window. Jesus, or James, I'm sorry, talks about the power of the tongue. In chapter 3, verse 2, he says, For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. That is quite a statement. The man who knows how to measure and discipline his speech also knows how to discipline his body. Now he says, if, he, if any man offend not in word. Now that does not mean that you are never going to say anything offensive to anyone. That's not what James is talking about here. Christianity is offensive to many people. And the culture in the culture that we live in today, if you speak the truth, sooner or later you are going to offend somebody. Probably sooner than later. So that's, that's not what James is saying. He's not saying, you know, don't ever say anything offensive. But what James is saying, don't sin with your words. Um, guard your tongue. Keep from saying things that you will regret. Speak words of life, words of kindness, words of uh, edification. Build people up. He's not saying that our words cannot be offensive to others, but he is saying that they cannot be offensive to God. Speaking, speaking of words that are offensive to God, I, I don't know if it's just me or if, if, if the language and tone of our society is worse than it used to be. I think it is. People just don't care about using vulgar and crude words, crude language, demeaning language. Uh, the internet is full of it. And I, I, uh, somehow people, it seems, find it easier to type things that, and send things that they wouldn't say to somebody in person. And I, I find it wears off on me. You know, if, if, we just, if we read those things over and over again, if we see them, if we hear them, it's going to uh, become less shocking. Language that used to be shocking isn't so shocking anymore. I think we need to, to back up a little bit and realize that words are important and that we use words that are... Um, don't use that kind of language that the world uses. He says that speech should be with grace. Let your speech be always with grace. And that, 
that word grace, the speech with grace means speaking with kindness, with gentleness, in humility, speaking to others in a tone that reflects the message of Christ. He also uses the phrase season with salt. Season with salt means uh, speaking in a tasteful way. We know what salt does. It adds taste to food. It, it gives it flavor. And so I, I think this, this phrase speaking, um, having speech that's seasoned with salt means that we, we speak in a way that is tasteful and that uh, is pleasant and winsome and people are willing to listen. You know, if we approach people in a confrontational and in a rude way, we're not going to gain a listening ear. We need to speak the truth, but we need to speak it in love and humility. And so when you speak to non-Christians and you do it with grace and humility and love, they may still get angry and upset if you speak the truth to them. It may be offensive, but you can go home assured that you have done well, you have done right by speaking the truth in the right way. The wrong response from a person does not mean that you have spoken wrongly. There's, there's a good example of that. Jesus has a good example of that in, in Luke chapter 4. I need to turn to that so I, so I get it right. But The account there is that um, Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry was in his home area of Galilee, Nazareth. He went to the synagogue where he grew up, and um, the book was given to him, the prophet Isaiah, and he stood up and he read these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And it says, the eyes of all them... I'm sorry, I lost my place. The eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And they wondered, and he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And so they were amazed at the graciousness of the words that Jesus spoke. And Jesus could have stopped right there and left the synagogue and everybody would have been happy. But, you know, he goes on and he said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever ye have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Seraphim, a Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elias, in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman, the Syrian. And what happened in, in those 10 minutes? It says, when all, when all they in the synagogue 
when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath and they rose up and thrust him out of the city. They were going to throw him down and uh, throw him over a high place and, and get rid of him. They were angry. Jesus escaped. But so he, he spoke words that were gracious, but then he also went on and he spoke the truth, even though it was offensive to them. In verse 5, back in Colossians again, Paul says that we should have our speech always with grace, seasoned with salt, so that we may know how to answer every man. And this means being able to tell those, those without, those outside of the church, why you believe the things that you believe has to do with the basis of your faith. Peter says that we are to be ready to give an answer to every man of the hope that is within us. It has, uh, you know, we, we, we get asked questions. You know, what, why do you believe that Jesus is the only way to God? That's a common question these days. Is this, that's, that's being exclusive. Why does Jesus have to be the only way to God? Could you answer that? Somebody would ask you that. Why do you believe the Bible is true? I think these things are especially um, important for you as young people to think about these things. Um, Why do you think it's wrong to go to war? Why do you wear a head covering? Young ladies, could you answer that if somebody would ask you? Why do you believe that homosexuality is a sin before God? That's a pertinent question in our culture today. And so we need to be able to answer those things, to give answer, to to rightly relate to those that are without. It takes wisdom. It takes the wisdom of God. But we should be able to explain and to show why we believe the things that we believe in an articulate way that that makes sense and in a way that is graceful without um, attacking a person. That's, that's a, a gift if you can do that. So young people, don't do things in ignorance. Know why you live the way you do. Don't just be like that hamster that's mindlessly spinning his wheel and uh, never getting anywhere. We need to ponder these things to have them settled in our minds. First of all, to ground our own faith And then also so that we can tell others why we believe what we do. That's part of walking in wisdom toward those who are without. As I was pondering um, these few verses and what it means to walk in wisdom toward those that are without, my mind went to an Old Testament character who I think is an excellent example of living this way. And that is the uh, prophet, the patriarch, whatever you want to call him, Daniel. If there ever was a man who found himself among those outside of Jesus Christ, those outside of the, of, of, uh, the realm of God, it was Daniel. He was a foreigner in a heathen nation, very heathen nation. And yet he was very influential in that nation in two 
um, nations, in fact, two different kingdoms. And I think he's an exceptional example of walking in wisdom toward those who don't know God. So how was he able to do that? How was he able to influence those kingdoms in that way? Well, first of all, he went as a captive to Babylon, having purposed in his heart, or he, he was confronted with a situation when he got there where he was going to have to go against what he knew was right. And he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. He was committed to keeping, you know, we would maybe think of this, this thing of, of not eating meat, of eating the wrong kind of meat. As, as maybe the least of God's commandments. But Daniel was committed to keeping the least of God's commandments. He purposed in his heart he would not defile himself. And he didn't. He was also known through the kingdom of Babylon to have an excellent spirit. The spirit of the holy gods, Belshazzar said. You're, you're known to have the spirit of the holy gods. There was something about Daniel, about his tone, about his bearing, about his character, the way that he related to others, that, that people around him recognized as exceptional and even supernatural. They said, There's, this man has got a spirit that, that we don't know anything about. They recognized that in him. He was not afraid to speak the truth. He spoke the truth to men who had the power to take his life. To the men who were the most powerful men in the world. Nebuchadnezzar, he was the greatest king in the world. He, he was the king of the greatest kingdom in the world at that time. And he had this dream, you know, when, of this tree and he didn't know what it was. And so he called Daniel up because he knew that Daniel was a wise man. And Daniel, um, God gave him the revelation of what that vision and that dream meant. And Daniel had the courage to go to Nebuchadnezzar and to say, Look, Nebuchadnezzar, you are proud. Because you are proud and because you have exalted yourself, you're going to become like an animal. You're going to lose your mind. You're going to go insane. And you're going to eat grass like an ox and so on for seven years or whatever it was. He had the courage to go tell Nebuchadnezzar that, the, the most powerful ruler of the world who could have instantly taken Daniel's life if he would have wanted to. But you know, what is amazing to me is the way that Daniel approached the king. And he said, what, what were the words that he said? He said, O king, may the interpretation of this dream be to your enemies and to those that hate you. See, Daniel had a way of, of just coming in humility and tactfulness that, that we often miss, I believe. He was able to do it in such a gracious way that the king took it off of him. He accepted it. He did the same thing to Belshazzar. Belshazzar was having that wild party and he saw the fingers on the wall writing that message. And again, the astrologers and his men couldn't tell him what it meant. And so he called for Daniel. Once again, the man that they recognized had this spirit of wisdom about him. And Daniel came in again and with courage. 
he was able to stand before Belshazzar and say, you are weighed in the balances and found wanting. Imagine standing before the king and telling him that. But he was able to speak the truth. He was able to do it with graciousness and with humility. Daniel also refused to compromise his faith and his practice of praying to God three times a day in that sinister plot of jealousy when he knew that it would cost him his life. He opened the doors, the windows, and and he prayed to the God of heaven just like he had always done before. I was I was moved thinking about Daniel and maybe the key to Daniel's success in walking in wisdom toward the world and he was successful. If you think about the influence that Daniel had in the kingdom of Babylon. I I think I have missed that that kind of influence. He was in the king's circles. He was he they knew him. He was influential in the personal lives of the kings that were ruling the world. But perhaps the key to Daniel's success was that he never held his own life very tightly. He was was willing to die for what he believed. And we have... um, kind of been focusing on on words and speech um, as far as walking towards those that are without this morning but Daniel's character also was exceptional in how he was able to relate and to influence the world around him and I think that's also a key for us as we think about influencing the world around us as we think about walking in wisdom toward those around us. It's so important that we are people of integrity and character and we're not living, we're not speaking words that that we don't mean. We're not speaking words that are not consistent with who we are. And I believe it's also important that like Daniel, we live a life of selflessness. We don't hold our lives too tightly. Walking in wisdom means sacrifice. Jesus went around ministering to others. He taught, he preached, but I think mostly what Jesus did is going around doing good to others. And that's a way, those, those acts of kindness, those little things that we can do for people around us speaks volumes That's a way of walking in wisdom. Jesus, in Matthew 25, he said, it's, you know, when you you have visited me in prison, you have ministered to me, you have um, given me food, given me drink. Those little acts of kindness and service are the way that we, to others, is how we walk in wisdom toward those that are without I should probably have talked more about that. Um, There's a lot more that could be said, but this sermon was for me. It's good for me to think about how I relate 
to those around me. The words that I say, do I take time to listen and to, to speak into other people's lives? Or am I just busy spinning that wheel of my own life? Too busy to give time to others. Too busy to listen. Too busy to influence people for the kingdom of God. Let's kneel for prayer.